This podcast features three supposed adults who definitely use adult language. They're also supposedly writers who are definitely not procrastinating by making this podcast. Listener discretion is advised. to No Bad Ideas, the storytelling game show where we take the worst ideas from the internet and try to turn them into stories that are actually good. My name is Gabriel Urbina, and I am your first Bad Ideas host. My name is Sarah Shackett. I'm your second Bad Ideas host. And my name is Zach Valenti, your third Bad Ideas host. And today we are joined by not one, not two, but three amazing special guest stars. Uh, emphasis on the word stars, because these are the lead actors and actress of one of our absolutely favorite shows in the whole wide world. Uh, please, please, uh, wherever you are, I don't care what you're doing, stop and put your hands together. Give them a round of applause, which they will have to only imagine, but they'll be able to feel it across time as we welcome Felix Trench, Beth Eyre, and Tom Crowley from Wooden Overcoats. How are you all doing? Hey, better now. Oh, Thank you. Yeah. Buffeted by all this time applause. That's hey. right, yeah. <laughs> Incredible. Guys, we're so happy to have you here. You are all grizzled veterans of No Bad Ideas, um, but we now have the treat of having you all here together to commemorate the... Um, the release of the first half of the final season of Wooden Overcoats. Um, now, for mm. any poor, unfortunate soul that is still awash in the shores of not having heard Wooden Overcoats yet, um, <laughs> despite our often merciless shilling for why it's one of the best shows out there, um, what is Wooden Overcoats? Like, what is this show that you all work on and for which you do so much? I think Beth should have What's to tell called? everyone what the show why, is. Why? Sure. Because <laughs> I think you'd probably do the best job. Simply not true. Okay, so uh, Wooden Overcoats is a podcast sitcom about two rival funeral directors on a fictional channel island. And we are currently releasing our fourth and final very sad season. Um, yes. And <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> very funny. Perfect. It's a funny comedy show. We hope. Uh, about some idiots who can't get on, <laughs> you know, you know like British comedies are. We should, spend, we should spend more time explaining the concept of a channel island than the... Yeah, I wonder yes, as well. It's much the most confusing part of that if you're not channel from the UK. Would you like to give island. that a crack right now, Felix? The English Channel is the stretch of water that separates the UK from France. Uh, it's now France heavily mined. Heavily mined, The sleeve, is it? Yeah, oh, I didn't yeah, know that. La Manche. La Manche. Uh, uh, there are a load of islands uh, which are near near France in the UK, which sort of form part of the UK's protectorate, but are not actually Britain. Mm. Um, they're all their own countries. It's one of those kind of confusing post-colonial uh, situations. And we've made up another one. Excellent. Yes, we invented one. I'm not sure. We, we know it's closer to France than England, uh, Piffling. Oh, cool. The, the fictional island of which we speak. But uh, so and so is Jersey and Guernsey, right as well. And so it's kind of it's never it's never been meant to be one of them. But now that we're about to you know, up sticks and run away, I might just start implying heavily that it's very specifically based on one, uh, <laughs> like very directly, extremely directly. I might start spreading that rumor. 
Uh, any suggestions? Guernsey references. <laughs> yeah, Guernsey, watch yeah. out. It's watch out, Guernsey. <laughs> Guernsey's mayor is fucking useless. <laughs> That's why <laughs> the whole show has been in the interest you heard of it just here saying, first, God, no bad That's ideas. Right. Oh dear. <laughs> is there a mayor of Guernsey? <laughs> I'm going to guess probably not. Guernsey don't already know. don't like us, right? That's the thing that they, happened. Is it Jersey or Guernsey that hates us? There was one radio Guernsey. presenter who took against uh, our, the premise of our show. All right, yeah, all right. Happy. We have now learned something, um, uh, <laughs> but it is no bad idea. So I need to put this to an immediate stop. This Absolutely. is a no learning, no educational type show. That's uh, right. We are so. here for foolishness and silliness. Um, okay. For anyone who is joining us for the first time, this is the show where us three bedraggled, sleep deprived hosts, we scour the internet for the worst ideas that humanity has had, just like the most ill-conceived, most ill-advised, just most ill things, and I only mean that in the negative way, that people have put their minds to. And we bring them here and we show them to our poor, horrified guests. And together we try, try being the operative word, to turn them into the concept for, say, a good movie or a good TV show or a good video game or a good something uh, in just 10 very short minutes. Um, are you guys ready to jump into our first bad idea? Yeah. Yes. A hundred percent. All right. Well, here we go. Um, this comes to us from the Beaumont Enterprise, um, okay. a newspaper that I think is making its No Bad Ideas debut. Oh. And dear listeners, if you would like to read along, there will be a link to this article in the episode description. But I'm just getting the timer and everything ready. <laughs> All right. I am now set. The headline reads, Texas woman arrested for attempting to buy a child at Walmart. Oh, God. Oh, wow. we're in, I, I oh, know dear. exactly where Beaumont, Texas is. This wow. unfortunately <laughs> tracks. <laughs> Yeah, it's oh, the dear. real Guernsey Tell me of the Texas. problem wasn't it's true. The Guernsey, <laughs> it's the Guernsey of Texas. It's like a little satellite between Houston and just chemical waste. Oh my God. Wow. wow. It's the only thing standing between Texas and chemical waste flooding. That's incredible. Gabrielle, tell me they the problem. They must be very stocky people. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, let's jump into the article itself for some um, additional horrific clarity. A Texas woman offered $500,000 to another woman at a Walmart in exchange for her child oh. while standing in line at self-checkout last week, according to the police. The messenger reported Rebecca Lynette Taylor, a 49-year-old woman from Crockett, was charged with the sale and purchase of a child. The Crockett wow. Police Department indicated an officer was on patrol on January 13 when she received a phone call from the mother of the child saying, quote, a white woman with blonde hair approached her in the Crockett Walmart two hours north of Houston. There you go, Sarah, wanting to purchase her son. According to an arrest affidavit, the mother had a baby in a car seat and her one year old in a cart. The affidavit states Taylor, quote, began commenting on her son's blonde hair and blue eyes. Oh, oh boy. No. She then asked how much she could purchase him for. The mom tried to laugh the comment off, thinking Taylor was joking. However, <laughs> Taylor told her that she had $250,000 in the car and would pay that much for him. Wow. In the car. In the, the mother, <laughs> yeah, it's just in the it's in the just back casual. of his van. Just, yeah, pop just, in. just walk in. Yep. Yeah. 
the mother told her no amount of money would do, according to authorities. You would hope so. Yeah. Okay. Good. Once outside in the parking lot, Taylor confronted the mother again (laughs) and asked to buy the baby. The affidavit stated Taylor told the mother she had been wanting to buy a child for a long time. Oh, my God. Quote, Taylor began screaming at the mom, saying if she wouldn't take $250,000 for him, i.e. for the slightly older child, then she would give her $500,000 for the baby because she wanted him and she was going to take him. Police records obtained by KETK-TV said. The mother got in her vehicle and locked the door with her children inside. Yep. Yep. Taylor left the scene shortly after. Surveillance footage caught the incident on camera and a warrant was issued for Taylor's arrest. She is being held at the Houston County Jail on a only $50,000 bond. So one less zero than when she wanted to (laughs) uh, pay for that. Well, you know, she's good for it. That's the good thing. Yeah, she got it in the car. So in the car, ready to go. Uh, okay, so that is that's what I have for you. It's um, you know horrific and the worst, um, wow. and I thought it'd be suitable for this um, bad ideas royale. Uh, Man, this mayor of Casterbridge reboot don't like it. <laughs> yeah, here I was thinking that the problem was that she broke open a twelve pack and just tried to buy one at Walmart. Mm. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> 12 pack right, of babies setting a 10 minute timer which is starting now well my first pitch to you all is um obviously there's some very sort of unfortunate and sinister connotations to this story you know what did taylor want with the kids um forgive me by the way taylor's the surname right but was the person trying to buy the children uh male or female she's female uh, Female, yes. It was another woman. Okay, so both both people involved are women. Okay, um, well, I'm going to suggest that maybe Taylor had plans for a baby militia. Uh, <laughs> buy as it. many I babies as possible. Arm mm-hmm. arm the babies. Okay. And um, and then train the them up are to our do. Future. Yeah, that's right. I believe the child militia is our future. The child <laughs> police, and uh, was going to take over the town of um, uh, Rear Entry, Beaumont? Texas. What was it called? <laughs> Beaumont. Beaumont, Texas, uh, is going to seize control of Beaumont, Texas using the baby militia. That's my first step. I don't know if the other Overcoats gang have okay, any so other Okay, so you're thoughts. saying it's a tip of the iceberg here and there's perhaps a budget yeah. for any number of children. Yeah. If you went into that van, the, there'd be like a bunch of two-year-olds with Kalashnikovs. <laughs> and the, the, the $250,000 was just like the petty cash discretionary, just yeah. in case we run into <laughs> any children that look good, that we want you to have this on hand. As a recruiter in the baby militia, clearly the structure goes much higher. And so uh-huh. you know, they have they have a treasury and all that. That's just the per diem. Yeah, that's the padam. That's your lunch. That's your spenders for lunch. Yeah. Um, I like the idea as well uh, that they have pulled off to fund the expansion of the baby militia, the toddler militia. They've um, they've also like knocked over a bunch of banks to find Mm -hmm. this 250 Mm -hmm. grand that they have readily available. (laughs) It's a virtuous series of uh, assaults that were just as adorable as they were deadly. I mean, and yeah, as long yeah. as it's the militia itself that's robbing the banks, right? I think because that's how they get the experience they would need for the militia. Yeah, they train them up. Yeah, using the uh, the bank heists in a series of small <laughs> Texan towns, uh, including Bilderberg, Texas. What was it? Uh, Bilderberg, um, <laughs> Beaumont. Beaumont Texas. I think we should call it Bilderberg, Texas. Bilderberg, Texas. Bilderberg. That's right. That's what they're going to rename it when they take over, because you know, kids and teddy bears, they love them. Oh, amazing. My question is 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 why she's building this this child militia 
Um, We're going with that, are we? Okay. (laughs) What is... We're now a full quarter of our time into this idea, Tom. So, like, I think we're right, uh, well, too, too deep to back out. The militia you make a strong is choice happening. And it works for you, yeah. Okay, uh, sorry, yeah, sorry so Felix, you were saying. What is she trying to fix? What is the hole in her heart that she thinks she can only repair <laughs> through a large-scale baby militia? And, and I think possibly there's a solution here in what, what tone of film we're going right. for. Uh, mm-hmm. Whether this is a kind of... Um, uh, balls of the wall, batshit Brazil kind of situation, or mm. just a pitch here, or gentle indie comedy. Gentle okay. indie I'm, comedy. I'm in favor of that. I, I'm gentle, picturing safety, like, not guaranteed. You know? Oh, yeah. Right. Shot in black That's and right. white, uh, a la Come On, Come On recently. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Black and white as well. I can see that. I'd like that. Or like bait over here in uh, 4x3. Nice. Yeah. Uh, no, you yeah. have the smaller aspect ratio because the kids are smaller. So go, let's <laughs> nice. do it. Yeah. You don't need to fit as many in horizontally. <laughs> it's a lot easier to fit more in to a shot. <laughs> Impossible to shoot because, you know, they always say they want actors to be roughly the same size. So, uh, a, a shorter man like Tom Cruise is quite an appealing prospect as sure. a love interest because they can shoot him and a, a shorter woman actor in the same frame easily. And, you know, sometimes people have to get on boxes or, or whatever. Yeah, so yeah, this yeah. is a nightmare in that respect. I think we should shoot it in portrait. So mm-hmm. you can get the grown the woman who's the, the sort of CO of the baby militia in the same shot as the babies much more easily. It's a film see, shot in portrait in black and white, and it's a gentle indie comedy about a Although woman. Heaven forbid if you ever need a shot babies. of a baby crawling from one side of the screen to another, then you'll then you'll be longing for that sweet anamorphic. <sighs> well, we'll rotate the phone that we're filming it on for that <laughs> sequence only. No, I love this is definitely shot on the iPhone for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So is the problem just like just bouncing off of all of this is the problem that she's been seeing all these influencers on Instagram with their own baby militias. And she's just like, I I, I, I feel like I want that. I feel like I want what they have that I don't. So I, I yeah, that's a nice idea. Yeah, it's it's 2025 and baby militias are the are on trend. Absolutely. They're all the rage. Or, or more, you just sort of need one because at this point, if you want to be able to find a parking space or, you know, get the last carton of milk in the shop, right? you know, that you're going to need a baby right. militia to fend off all the other baby militias. So rather than living as a second-class citizen, you take matters into your own hands. <laughs> That's it. I think we call it do. World War B, personally. <laughs> World War B. Yeah. I like this it. You are halfway through your time warning. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. No, I like to say so. It's it's a gentlemanly comedy shot in um, partially in widescreen, partially in portrait uh, on a phone about a woman who buys babies to train them up and rob banks so that she can buy more babies to form her own baby militia in a sort of semi dystopian, not dystopian, but just quite a chaotic future. Right. Where it's, like, it's like low key apocalyptic, like something. Yeah, went yeah. Pretty wrong. And it's semi-apocalyptic. A little bit but the collapse, point of the indie perhaps. comedy is that life goes on in the midst of absurdity, right? And so sure, like, exactly, sure. yeah, yeah. It's a bit more like Mad Max One than Mad Max Two, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Semi-collapsed society. Sure. And um, so, so where does it go from there? It, well, if we're being true to the genre, I think that she needs to not get the full baby militia by the end, and she needs to learn right. to accept herself without an entire baby militia. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. She just has like a baby squad, and she right. has to learn to love them instead of longing for the bigger militia. As as like so much science fiction is 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 metaphor, is it the baby militia, does, does that stand for kind of really trying to compete on the same level that the world is forcing you to? 
you know, it's like, oh, you got to have the fast car. You got to have the most immaculate mm-hmm. makeup. You yeah. got to have the best clothes, you know? And it's like, no, no. I, at the end, she realized that actually the real baby militia was the friend she made along the way. And, you know, gives the babies back Maybe. to the parents that oh, she wow. bought or stole them from. Like raising her own And then, and it's, she learns to be her exactly. own baby militia. She learns to be her yeah. own baby that, militia. I like that. What was that entail? She learns to be her own baby. She learns <laughs> yeah. to baby herself. I love this. I think, I think that's maybe your ending. But what, what's the big challenge that makes her, you know, realize this isn't the way to go? The, the amassing greater and greater baby. I think militia. a heist. A heist, another heist. She's got lots of different squads, and each baby squad has a particular skill. Yeah, (laughs) she puts them all together (laughs) to get like the final baby. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's a best, the best baby. Oh, that's really good. Of a banker, sure. Uh, In in a vault, in a vault. Yeah, because obviously everyone's after babies for the baby militia, and this baby's the best baby. Mm -hmm. And there comes a point where she could go after the best baby, but it would probably mean horrible harm coming to all her other babies or she yeah. can forsake the payday and save her her Ooh. troops as it were yeah and then that's the choice she makes and that makes her realize well i don't want to put these babies in harm's way so i shouldn't have a baby militia at all sure, sure. and we have a great scene where she she just sort of suddenly stops and goes like but this is absolutely insane why are we having baby militias and realizes oh no Actually, this was all flawed from the beginning. Right, right, right. I should have thought this out a little bit more. We're a baby militia, she says, and and realizes, hang on, this is absolutely awful. This is a horrible thing to do. This this movie is now being produced by Every Town for Gun Violence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Absolutely. She stands up in town at the end of the film and makes a speech against baby militias. Mm-hmm. And is then mown down mercilessly by the other baby militias. Oh, wow! Like every good indie Texas, comedy. Beaumont, Beaumont, Texas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's and that's the kind of, but it's really low key the way it's done. Beth, you like, see, yeah, no, I see that. Yes, of, of course. That makes yeah, yeah. sense. <laughs> it's very restrained. Yeah, the third act is just artful shots of the final battle. Scene. I think you'd have some Joan Baez playing, sort uh, of sure, some quite sure. lighthearted Joan Baez uh, sort of folk music playing over the top to kind of give it that Wes Anderson deadpan kind of humor. This is not that far from Wes Anderson, I will say. <laughs> I think he would, Baby Militia would be a film he would do. I don't know if it might be one of the stop motion ones. Yeah. Right. 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 Interesting. And ethics questions involved. You know? Yeah, yeah. stop no. motion yeah. would solve those. Absolutely. It would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, obviously stop motion costs an insane amount of money, but it's probably easier than training up a bunch of baby actors to like fire and load a gun. Uh, probably, then, probably. Stop motion it then. Yeah, this was the <laughs> and of course there's a lot of gun safety messaging after in. doing it with live babies and dropping the trailer, much like Sonic the Hedgehog. The reaction yeah. forced them to <laughs> to reshoot the whole thing. Just like a bunch of YouTubers with their faces in their hands, going like reaction to uh, yeah. <laughs> baby militia to World War B. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To the World War B trailer. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, I think we've made the most expensive film ever, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. Was that the objective? What's the game? What is it? <laughs> uh, well, that is time. Um, hey. So we're going to say that, yes, that was the objective. Um, my lord, my lord, my lord. Wow. I have, I have a lot of questions. I'm not going to lie. 
Um, <laughs> well, you can I put them to our producer in the World War B uh, storyboarding room uh, later this week when we go into production. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. You know, Tom, when you were sort of saying that she'll come to that moment of like, you know, baby malicious, why, why, why were we doing this? Why did we think that this was a good idea? I've been enjoying recently, there seems to be a trend of movies that yeah. simply take verbatim an argument that happened in the writer's room and put them into the script uh, and just kind of have those characters suddenly going like, wait a minute, why are we even doing this? This yes. premise is ridiculous. <laughs> and so I like yeah. that this um, this perhaps joins the noble ranks of those movies. I think so. It's the kind of style of writing that I think is um, best exemplified in a film I haven't actually seen. But it's uh, I've been told that in Ocean's 13 or Ocean's 12 or one of those sequels, there's a sequence where Julia Roberts, George Clooney and Brad Pitt are sitting around a table and one of them goes, hey, you know what? You actually look a lot like Brad Pitt, the actor Brad Pitt, who also apparently exists in this universe. And he says, yeah, and you know what? You look a lot like Julia Roberts. This is 13, and you go, I don't think you can do this <laughs> in a film. <laughs> no, and it's what's worse is it's building in 12, like uh, Julia right. Roberts plays as Tess, her character, Julia Roberts. Um, oh, she impersonates. She impersonates Julia, Julia, oh, Julia Roberts and is apparently very bad at it. Uh, is the is the conceit <laughs> wow. of of a whole subplot of that movie? They, they, yeah, they, that they just went straight into shark, self deconstruction huh? after the first one. They were like, "Well, we're not going to top yeah. that, so we might no, as well just, get just silly. Also, tear it down." There's also a there's also this is me cribbing from a different podcast. I'm sorry, but I I enjoy the deep dive uh, movies podcast uh, with Gawley and Rust, where they talk about uh, horror movies. Nice, and uh -huh. they reviewed Freddy versus Jason. And uh, they pointed out that there's a, an exchange in the film, which is almost ripped straight from the headlines of the writer's room, where one of the main sort of teen characters says, okay, Freddy died by fire, Jason died by water. How can we use that? <laughs> and it's like, as if someone in the room just said that, and they went, no, shut up. Stop writing. We've done it. We've got it. Write that <laughs> down in the, the script. Yeah. <laughs> we can just put that in the script. That'll do. Let's go home. <laughs> well, Beautiful. Uh, yeah, we can't go home yet because I have another idea. Um, but maybe, maybe Freddie and or Jason can figure into it. We'll see. Okay. Oh, well, I'm game. Uh, so this comes from our friends at NPR, and this will also be in the episode description if listeners would like to read along. So continuing our theme of heists, I'm curious if babies would be involved. Uh, a man allegedly stole hundreds of unpublished book manuscripts, now face charges. Okay. Um, for five years, a man who worked in publishing tricked authors and industry insiders into sending him hundreds of unpublished manuscripts, including one from a Pulitzer Prize winning author, according to do, federal do authorities. Now, the alleged fraudster is facing federal charges. Filippo Bernardini, a 29-year-old Italian citizen who was working for publishing company Simon & Schuster UK as a rights coordinator, was arrested on Wednesday as he arrived at John F. Kennedy Airport in New York. Federal authorities say Bernardini impersonated real people in the publishing industry to fraudulently obtain magic to fraudulently obtain manuscripts of novels and other books and notes about those books. He hmm. obtained hundreds of unpublished manuscripts from August 2016 to July 2021. Quote, Mr. Bernardini was allegedly trying to steal other people's literary ideas for himself, but in the end, he wasn't creative enough to get away with it. Michael Driscoll, the assistant <laughs> director in charge, oh my God. <laughs> in charge of the FBI's New York office, said in a statement. 
The scheme allegedly involved the Bernardini creating fake email accounts and web pages that seemed to match real people in the publishing industry, including talent agents and people at publishing houses. Prosecutors no. say he had more than 160 internet domains that were deliberately designed to be, quote, confusingly similar to real pages. Uh-huh. For example, federal authorities say that Bernardini would replace the lowercase m with the two letters RN to make them appear visually similar. Oh wow. my God. <laughs> and he designed a web page <laughs> that mimicked a scouting company's website and asked users to enter a username and password. The information then went straight to his own email address. So he's just a really shitty, talented Mr. Ripley. He's a not so talented mm-hmm. Mr. Ripley. <laughs> that is exactly what this is. Bernardini's employer, Simon & Schuster UK, said it was, quote, shocked and horrified to learn about the allegations. The publisher added that Bernardini had been suspended until more information comes to light. He has been charged with wire fraud, which has a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison, and aggravated identity theft, which only has a mandatory sentence of two consecutive years in prison. That seems weird to me. Hmm. That is what I have for you. Um, Before we get into the actual ideas, can I just say, like, I definitely fall for this scheme, because I don't know how it works in America, but the way you become a a writer in, in Britain is you do lots and lots and lots of work uh, and send your work out to like dozens of people every week and you never get paid for them and never know where those scripts go. Sure, sure. So like they could have produced whole seasons of things I've written and I wouldn't know about it because, you know, the way it works is you just trustingly s- boost out everything and you've ever created as freely and widely as you can. Yeah. <laughs> right, so why this guy went to all this trouble, I don't know. It. He could have just said, yeah. I'll, I'll get your work made or published or something. And then every writer would just instantaneously send him everything they'd ever created happily, right. freely. He could even mm-hmm. say, well, I'm going to steal it and take credit. They still probably go, oh, whatever, man, you go yeah, ahead. I'm really there. desperate for the work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> whatever I have to do. You know, we, we're, we, we don't really believe we have any rights. Uh, so I don't see why well, he went to all this trouble, but that's just yeah. me. <laughs> all right. Let me that's my read on the situation. Sorry. Anyway, no, we no, should no. probably turn it into a story. Boy. Yeah. Like it is one of these things where just like, I just com- so completely failed to grasp the dimension of how he thought that this was going to work. Yeah. Like where is the, com- it's step one, step two, question mark and profit, but yeah. like the right, question right. mark is real. Yeah, no, but like that, like this was an unsolved problem in this plot. Um, so I'm kind of not sure what is the best way to like approach adapting it into a good narrative of some sort. I would really like to see a scene of Bernardini uh, not just taking their digital lives, but meeting them for coffee to study them and then mm. impersonate them later at Simon & Schuster UK. I also want there to be one character whose entire role is to step in and say, it's uh, Simon & Schuster UK, actually. (laughs) 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 You know, and he like wants them to touch the coffee mug so that he can later, you know, peel the like Mm -hmm. fingerprint impressions off of it um, and Mm. duplicate it. Um, again to like what end like <laughs> sort of I wonder did he think maybe one of these one of these eventually will be the next Harry Potter maybe he's just cr- so starved for spoiler content that he needs he needs to, to spoil his own stuff no one else has read that he needs to spoil stuff that no one else has read yeah, or, yeah. Or maybe it's sort of what you were saying earlier Tom that with people thinking they have no rights as writers how does that drive yeah. you in the end maybe you just want to 
take down the entire system. Or maybe he's a frustrated writer himself and he got sick of the way the business works. Yeah. I like this. I like this. You know what it could be, though? Um, It could be some sort of very twisted revenge plot, you know? Um, Bernardini is dating this high-powered, you know, publishing exec madly in love with them. One day the exec sort of goes, no, that's it. I don't want to deal with you anymore. I don't have time for you. I only deal with, like, published and wonderful book authors. Do you know who we're about to reel in? We're about to reel in John Q. Smith, the most, you know, uh, anticipated and eager writer to come along in three decades. And so poor Bernardini, he's spurned, he's been, you know, tarnished. And so he goes, what if I usurped John Q. Smith's identity? And then I will be sort of, you know, the object of the affection and I will be the object of the desire. And then I can do the rejecting. So it's all in the service of attracting one guy in the end. Look, I'm really nice. grasping for a straw for how this plot <laughs> makes no, sense. No, I like that. I like that idea. No, it's he, kind he of like a reverse Morvern collar. Yeah, exactly. Right. Maybe that's that then. Maybe the idea is that he's he wants to. There's one guy who he knows. Maybe he knows him in real life as well. Mm-hmm. He wants to adopt. He wishes he was like he's professionally jealous, essentially. Mm-hmm. Sure. And he's going. I wish I was John Q. Smith who, you know, everyone loves his music journalism, his short story publishing, his blog, his Twitter account. Everyone loves that guy. Everyone, he's so hyped. And everyone's just waiting for that first novel. There's a bidding war over the first novel. At some point it's going to come. And But maybe he's a bit mysterious, John Q. Smith. This guy knows who he is. Yeah. But he's very successfully guarded about his work. So this guy, essentially, he's trying, Bernardini's trying to cast as wide a net as possible so he will get the literary agent inquiry from John Q. Smith. Mm. So yes. he can steal the manuscript and all of his personal information and become the hyped writer, not the loser no one cares about. That's Absolutely. right. That's right. But nothing lasts forever, right? So after a while, this guy's going to be old news. So he's going to have to do it again. Exactly. Oh. Exactly. Chasing that high. So yeah, now maybe the movie wrong. starts. As he has successfully usurped the identity of John Q. Smith, but now Telena Garante the next great thing. Um, yeah, right. He's got to do it again. <laughs> I love her. <laughs> <laughs> no, and like, in the, in the, in that is the problem. They can't actually generate the literary output of these people. That like, you problem. know, they cannot sit down at a computer <laughs> and bang out the next John Q. Smith novel. Um, maybe I'm maybe I'm going too far down the similar route of the, the indie comedy, but I don't know. There's a farcical element to this, which which is sort of, occurring to me, which is if he if his goal is to stay sort of fresh and interesting to the publishing world, I as I think maybe Beth was point saying earlier, maybe this guy Bernardini was once a hotly tipped writer whose second novel sold like nothing and right. and was instantly forgotten. So now he's gone, well I'm gonna become the next big hit new thing every single time. So then yes. but then yeah. surely you have to have a kind of either either each of these I mean he has to kill them. They're dead or they're tied up in his basement in some sort of horrible Silence of the Lambs setup. Yeah, uh, but tying up a bunch of really bitchy novelists in a basement is a really fun idea. (laughs) That's great. No, that (laughs) becomes the the indie comedy is all of the novelists tied up in a basement arguing with each other instead of trying to get out. Oh, that's great. As he becomes more successful, the compound becomes less Mm -hmm. shitty. Like the prison, like he adds the hot tub room. Oh, yeah. No, by the end, it's quite posh. 
<laughs> yeah. And then maybe by the end, the way that they get the better of him is they convince him that, hey, we we actually don't mind this setup. It's quite good. You know, we're all, he's got a sort of one million monkeys setup where they're mm. all on typewriters in his basement. And eventually they <laughs> wow. say, look, look, Bernardini, we don't mind the idea of collaborating because you're right. You know, this world is fickle and we could stay relevant and keep writing the rest of our lives if we all just adopt a new persona each time. So why don't, you know, if you let us out of this basement and we all just go and, um, you know, imagine it, we'll have a kind of vineyard writer's retreat mansion that we all live in with all of our advance money. And, you know, we, we just live in there writing novels and sticking a different one of our names on it each time. Right. You know, and some of us can even be sort of press coordinators. We can build up the hype for the next guy while we're still finishing the novel of the, the previous person. And, uh, and so then they, they sell him on this idea and, uh, it gets oh, a good idea. And then the second that he loosens one of their, you know, handcuffs, misery style, they just smash his head in with a typewriter. Of course, of course. Uh, <laughs> immediately and then escape and tell the police what happened. That's if it's a movie. If it's a series, it'll spin out longer, I think. You might sure, actually sure. get to the vineyard. You might actually see this plan start to work. I think he needs a big score at the end. I think in, in the final act, he needs to be working on someone super famous, like, I don't know, Bill Bryson or something. Right. Yeah. That's nice. Carl Hyacinth. It's like, <laughs> I am... <laughs> right. I'm someone who is someone Hillary Mantel, coming, but an Hillary Mantel yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. I think that's great. That's nice. So maybe when you maybe you go in a several stages sort of fashion. So at the beginning, it's the wide net of going. I'm going to be John Q. Smith or whoever the next exciting yeah. person is. I'm sick of being forgotten. And then the next stage is he's got this like farm of writers just churning stuff out because <laughs> it's all they know how to do, and it's the only way they can survive and keep him happy is to keep writing. And then. After a while, he starts individually targeting. Maybe he, maybe he goes, no, 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 for this to sustain itself. Oh, no, okay. So first they do do the vineyard writer's retreat plan, and okay, they're so all in on it together. Yeah. That's <laughs> like, yeah, this is, maybe this would have to be a series. But like, then, then, yeah, after a while, that starts to happen, and they work, they're all in on it. They do go in for it. But then they realize, well, this is fine, but we would also could really use a couple of, you know, Atwoods, you know, people who are sustainably mm. uh, popular for their whole lives so that we can get some of that dependable money in as well. So they got to go and like clonk Margaret Atwood over the head with a, a kosh <laughs> and take her to the vineyard. Lord. She would be the we person because Stephen the vineyard. King is prepared. <laughs> That's, That's true. Yeah. King is like, I think he volunteers. He's like, yeah, whatever. That could be a fun scene though, is they just like try to try to grab <laughs> Stephen King and he's ready with the sawed-off shotgun. Yeah. <laughs> And he's fine with it. He's fine with all of it. Yes, everything that's going on. He's like, yeah, I'm, this is good. <laughs> yeah, they like. Yeah, he says, "I'll still build to write books." He sort of goes you. like, "I'm willing to forget that this ever happened. Just walk away right, right. now." And it's yeah. like, okay, maybe all he right, offers we're, we're them the vineyard. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I quite like that. <laughs> <laughs> this is nice. How long have we got? And do we have a uh, series yet? I think you you have the makings of a series. You have about fifty seconds left. We need a title. Uh, okay. You. I think I think I like the vineyard, but I think there's probably a better fantastic title out there. A new leaf. Um, no, I'm, yeah, new leaf. Something like you know, person de plume or something. I don't know. Um, oh, um, that's nice. Yeah, nom, nom de plume. Nom, nom de, de plume, plume is a good title. Yeah, yeah that is a good title. Nom, yeah. Nom, yeah, like yeah plural. Yeah. All right. All, all right. right. That's. 
Oh, finish your thought, Gabrielle. No, I was going to go into like who is playing the mastermind at the center of this, but we may not have the real estate for. You have ten seconds. I think Tucci. Tucci, oh. get Tucci. Oh, wow, wow. That's great. Really well. Look at that. Amazing. Correct it. Tucci, uh, yeah. Solved it. Well Tucci Feely. Wow. If there is wow. someone... <laughs> If there is someone that deserves a Breaking Bad style role, that yes. like a slightly Ponzi refined awards and wake up people yeah. to what a good actor they've been for decades now, it's Stanley Tucci. I yeah. think you go, there's two directions you can go, and it's either going to be Tucci or Giamatti. <laughs> like mm. it's either going to be like a, a Harvey Pekar style schlub who's this main guy, or he's like a polo neck wearing visionary, and I think that's your Tucci. Get them, get them both. Um, Giamatti can be My brothers. John Q. Smith. Yeah, there you go. Nice. You know, you can be one of the writers. I, so I think jaded, I, I would rather mind. see Giamatti. Yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> but I, I think I would rather see Giamatti kidnap Tucci. They can still both wear fabulous sweaters. It doesn't matter. That's right. And and Danny DeVito plays like the Thomas Pinchon-esque, like mm, older oh recluse. That's right. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, I want every bald and balding actor in Hollywood. <laughs> of course, now they're quite late bloomers, these writers. Like, they're they are people who are... There's something are... in that as well, like desperation because it's sort of a youth culture, right? Yeah. 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 And so, but some of the people they're grabbing are young, like young sure. hotshots who are now fashionable because yeah. they're hyped. I think that's part of it. We throw Zendaya and Selena Gomez in there. It'll be great. Right. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, like you were say Just something. like only murders in the building. Oh, um, I, I was, but it doesn't matter. But I'll tell you something else that's interesting, uh, which is that <laughs> I read Stanley Tucci's uh, memoir over Christmas, and it's fantastic. Have you read wow. it? Oh, wow. No. I wonder it's, if you got it it's, stolen. It's delight. It's a frothy, gentle delight. Oh. There we go. That's it's beautiful. It's full of recipes as well. <laughs> I was going right. to say, is it food-based? Because he's become a big food guy of recent years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like, I like that move. Through food. It's fantastic. What is, what is the, that's Excellent. the title? His Life Through Food? No, it's called Taste. Taste. Oh, incredible. It's called Tucci right. Feely. Everybody, everybody go buy Taste. Tell them that you heard about it on No Bad Ideas. Let's see if we can get the sponsorship. Oh, yeah. And while we try to finagle that, we're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back to talk to these three very talented individuals about their own adventures in podcasting. So stay tuned and we'll be right back. Tucci Feely. Hello there, Zach Valenti jumping into this episode with this brief reminder that we have an active Patreon page to support the production of No Bad Ideas and all the other crazy worlds we're building behind the scenes. To check that out, scope the sweet rewards we offer for monthly subscriptions as well as how to sign up yourself. Head on over to nobadideaspodcast.com slash support. Once more, that's nobadideaspodcast.com slash support. If you already support the show, we so appreciate that. And regardless, thank you for listening. All right, let's get back to more No Bad Ideas. All right, everybody, welcome back. We are here once again with the fabulous Tom Crowley, Felix Trench, and Beth Eyre, lead performers on Wooden Overcoats, the 
beloved pillar of the audio fiction community, which is in the middle of yeah. its um, fourth and final season, which is both very joy producing um, and also a, only slightly tear jerking because I don't want the show to be over. Absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so we thought we would um, ask you a little bit about what it's been like to work on the show over these years um, and what it's like to be here where we are now um, and just kind of have like a little bit of chat about overcoats. Um, and I guess maybe the place to start is it's been a second since we last heard from Piffling Vale. It's been um, hard to believe. I had to fact check this. It's been almost four years since the third season. Um, you what can't, has no. It, no? <laughs> oh, my I, God. I, I think 2018 is when that third season came out. Jesus you are right. Christ. It's terrifying, yeah. isn't it? Um, what has it Awful. been like to kind of step back into these characters after that absence? Has it been just, you know, like slipping on the old perfectly fitted glove? It's just been there waiting for you this time. Has it been at all hard to kind of like find the Rudyard of it all, the Chapman of it all mm -hmm. uh, after um, some time away and pursuing other projects? You know, when we started doing Overcoats, I was 28 and... Rudyard's stated age in episode one is 35. Uh -huh. I am now 35. <laughs> He's like Steve Coogan and Alan Partridge. He's rapidly becoming somehow the age he should be. <laughs> so you managed, you managed to catch up to Rudyard is really what happened. I suppose it depends how much time has passed in Piffling. Um, I sort really of think of it as one year a season. What do you think, Tom? You're on the actual writing Committee. Yeah, well, I, we don't really question it. I mean, in my head, I suppose I I think that Rudyard and Antigone are sort of perennially in their nebulous late thirties, but it's sometimes a bit ambiguous what year it's set. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, like it's not, and I think it is now. I think maybe there are references like, oh, it's twenty twenty two for God's sake, or or some like a line. Something like that, or it's the. But Piffling is a little bit the island that time forgot. It sort of yeah. seems like maybe the smartphone revolution Didn't is only there, yeah. gradually washing up on the shores of Piffling Vale. Chapman would have like an iPhone, but he'd be regarded as very flash for for having one, and he wouldn't be able to use it because right. the only mobile signal is in the vicar's bathroom. That's been canonically established. That's established, <laughs> yeah. So we know it's at least like beyond 1995 when it when a rollout of mobile signal across the world would have you know, really happened in earnest. But so that's as far as we'll get. No, I think it is set now. It's just, yeah, it's like, it's, I think it's, it's, it's a world that's not that fictional, really. Like, again, not to slag off Guernsey uh, too much, <laughs> but no, I, I'm sure Guernsey is, is very technologically connected and, and incredibly uh, progressive. But, you know, there are, there are places that are just simply less well served by things like urban development and mobile signal internet service, you know, right. and like there's, and it's just one of those places that's a bit neglected. I think, and um, but partly by choice, they partly have this sort of slightly mercurial, uh, timeless existence. But I think that's partly because the the values that make Piffling Vale of sort of acceptance and kindness and um, uh, inclusiveness are uh, timeless. And being a bit shit at your job, that's of course, the other. of course, <laughs> being badly suited for the job that you're doing, that's timeless. <laughs> timeless comedy value. You asked us, Gabrielle, how, what it was like, uh, how easy it was to kind of slip back in. I don't know about you guys, yeah. but I did feel rusty. Like it, it did take me a little bit to get back into that headspace. Yeah, I, I found that a little bit, and you sort of start to think, you know, I have actually years have actually passed. Has my has my voice changed? <laughs> and is that going to be 
really weird. And also, I mean, my character Antigone has changed a bit. She's right. done a lot of things and I suppose grown up in some ways. And then you, which is exciting. One might perhaps argue Antigone has come the farthest out of all the characters from where That's she was right, at the yeah. start Maybe. of the show to now. I guess yeah. she had the furthest to come given in the first episode. She's not really leaving the house. The house yeah. <laughs> so oh, no, I meant long... strictly in terms of physical distance traverse. She's come the furthest. That is what I meant. Yeah, absolutely. Her Pokemon so... Go profile was woeful. It was like one <laughs> two foot square she room. She just like, had signed up to see what, what it was and then didn't didn't use it after. Yeah, And she got, again, there was no mobile signal, so it didn't work very well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that leads us to the next thing that I wanted to ask you, which is, um, you know, while Overcoats is not completely a cartoon show, you all play characters that are in some way, we could call them stylized, we could call them slightly exaggerated. You kind of are characters that all have, you don't just have characteristics, you have kind of big extreme characteristics in the roles, which are often mine both for pathos and for comedy in these characters. Um, how do you approach sort of playing someone that is kind of so bigger than life as a performer? Is there kind of a conscious thought to kind of like how to key into those like big, big character choices? Or is it mostly just kind of following where the writing takes you? Writing and directing, I think, that I remember early on pushed like instinctively going smaller than than Rudyard has come out and kind of having the the clown aspects pulled out of him. Hmm. I'm yeah, a I think tremendous ham, so it's different. <laughs> <than me>. um, <laughs> if there's a laugh to be found in the line, I'll find it and then I'll like grab it and wring its little nipple till it's milked for all it's worth. But um, that's just coming from a comedy background, I think. That's what you look for. But like you have to, the thing, the other lesson from comedy is you have to play the truth of it otherwise it's not funny yeah. if eric uh did a funny voice and came in like well, i'm so bloody funny enjoy like, yourselves enjoy yourselves guys <laughs> like you know it would it would not be as interesting or as funny right that's the benefit of having 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 done a lot of comedy performance but both in little sketch in a sketch group which is where i sort of started out and that it teaches you quickly having done a bit of stage like acting and some screen and, and also doing a lot of sketchy stuff like short release characters it makes you realize the difference between it's really helpful to make a big big choice an incredibly bold choice straight away with a, a sketch character in the direction that is useful to the viewer like to tell you who they are so if you want you know a character, a character comes and says oh gosh Rooney, i'm so delightfully pleased to be here you go okay i get who they are that that's mm -hmm. a pomposity that will later be deflated but generally in my experience you just want to play someone that's that's going to yield to more returns who's a bit more grounded and closer maybe closer to who you are in real life I sometimes say that Eric Chapman is me, but more confident. And Inspector Fleet from Victoriosity is me, but more tired. And I think that's basically <laughs> it. Like, but it, it's it's I, you try and keep it instinctive. Like, I don't think there yeah. is a, a Chapman voice, especially. There's definitely a root to the character in the voice that I try and find. And if it's not there, I feel wrong. But yeah, but again, he's he's a fairly naturalistic character. I do want to hear more from Beth about this because Antigone is is more of a kind of extreme character at the beginning, anyway. There's an element of it being a huge collaboration between directors and writing, but I guess I feel like a bit of a fraud in a way because I've definitely played characters where I've sort of struggled to get into them and thought about 
how to try and make that work. And with this, I think from the earliest script, I just kind of knew who she was and how she sounded. Mm. So it's just, it's actually very freeing. You just sort of think, well, I know what Antigone would be like. <laughs> um, I don't know what it's I'd be like dumb. in those situations. I haven't got a clue. And um, that would be really stressful. But <laughs> And I don't know, maybe it taps into these parts were written for us, which is a huge and lovely thing. And I think it taps into those parts of me that are most paranoid and strange. And it's kind of fun to have explored that. Beth does say, Beth does say, what do you mean to me quite often? Which is just as herself, like in a normal life. So yes, there is a that's bit the of other aspect of it. Yeah. Being Usually when I say something, something like, <laughs> yeah, if I say like, you look nice today, you know, it'll be like, what do you mean? Like as, as if... <laughs> There's some particular <laughs> garment I'm like indicating, or like there's some issue with how she looks. It's like no, no, I just you just look nice today. What do you mean? Yeah, and yeah, so and now I'm of, aware yeah. of that. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah that's Thank fine. You, that's fine. You knew you were doing it at the time. I knew you were <laughs> putting on a show for me, teasing me. I think it's it's amazing how far you can go sometimes and still be grounded, for lack of a better word. I. We're doing our live shows at the minute and we're streaming them as well. And that's all being recorded by um, King's Place up in, in North London. And uh, we get uh, a link to the stream afterwards to kind of do with us as we please. So I've been doing a bit of a post-match analysis and going, OK, this worked, that that didn't work. And it, it always strikes me that the things that the moments that on stage or in the recording studio you think... Oh, like for God's sake, this is this is ridiculous. This is no one speaks like this. This is clownish. This is uh, I'm, I'm not a human. I'm a balloon. Um, <laughs> work perfectly fine from an audience, but like you are never as big as you think you're going because you're. Mm. That really comes from a place. Well, very often it comes from a place of ego rather than of of critical thinking. Sure. Have you guys found uh, any difference in I'm, in, in terms of? how you approach the live shows versus being in a studio or is it just like you're thinking with the character's hat on both ways and there there isn't much different other than more people staring at you off the back of what felix said like again and going back to me being a ginormous ham big sweaty ham <laughs> uh, christmas ham um i it, no, it's keep definitely going. what sort of glazing is on the ham, there's a honey please. honey mustard glaze great, ham great, on, great. on that the triple basted Ham, and um, <laughs> there's definitely more of a pressure to even more than usual ham up, you know, go for the gags and leave the pauses hanging longer just if the audience hasn't warmed up yet. All of those skills come into it as well. And, you know, and it's really lovely to do it, especially because we've, when we started doing it, I think we all had quite a lot, we had a lot of live experience and a lot of doing live comedy experience as well, not like stand up or sketch or whatever, but necessarily, but plays and, you know, readings, sort of radio comedy style, scripted, you know, script in hand readings live and stuff like that. But, you know, as it's gone on, we have just become, you know, like a, like a cast of a Radio 4 show that have been in the radio theater a hundred times. Like, you know, it, it's not how we record the final product for the podcast feed, but it is something we've done alongside the show from the very beginning. And it's brilliant fun. And it just lets you explore the extremes of, and also just you have a bit more permission just to like ad lib around things a bit or try mm. and get someone else to corpse. And, you know, you would be <laughs> ruining it completely if that was, the, you'd be wasting valuable time in the studio. But when it's live, that's what people turn up for is, you know, to see you knob about. I think I have, um, I, I kind of think of it in terms of the kind of actor reactor and the helicopter actor. 
um, okay. or sort of inside outside. And when you're in the studio, there's a lot more space for the inside, the focusing on on what's going on. How does this actually affect you? How do you feel? Um, and so on, because all of all of that gets picked up by the microphone. When you're on stage, when I'm on stage, the helicopter becomes much more important, and that's you looking down on yourself, um, making sure that the technique is right, making sure that you're standing X centimeters from the microphone, that you're being hot on your cues, that you're making sure um, to be part of an ensemble and and, um, work from a very technical, stagey perspective. Keeping your feelers out with the other actors as well. Mm. It was, do you know what, weirdly, I didn't really answer about being rusty. I, I did feel a little like we, we, I had to ease back into Chapman, but more than that, it was when, because obviously we didn't do anything over Coetzee except for the remote recorded lockdown special. Which was, was kind of all we'd done for a lot. Well, thank you. I, I really, I thought it was a great way to do it. And I thought it was really yeah. fun. But, um, you know, that's not the same as being in studio or being live in person. And it, it really was London Podcast Festival 2021. I feel like I sort of was only really in my own body <laughs> from about halfway through the first episode that we did. And until then I went, Oh yeah, I remember <laughs> this is quite hard, <laughs> you know, because right. you, and I, what occurred to me at the time was like, Oh no, you need to be reading the script so that you can have the lines, you know, in hand, ready to go. You need to be performing out to the audience that's in front of you and also acting opposite all the other actors to your left or right, you know, and many of whom you often can't see because of the way the actors are lined up to be visible to the audience and the way the mics are arranged. And so often you're like, oh, and like you, you you have to judge in a moment whether it's funnier to give that line to Kira Baxendale over there or whether to deliver it straight out to the audience. But never mind that, because also you need to, you've got another line in two lines time in like right. one second's time. So you need to be ready with the next cue as well, ready to go bang, while also having all of your feelers tuned to, you know, three, two, three, four, including the sound effects, <laughs> different cue systems. You know, how's the audience reacting? Can you get more out of that line? Uh, yeah. Or can you, is it better to just throw it away and get past this one because they're not warmed up yet? Okay. Oh, now I need to give something back to Beth because she just said that line. And, you know, there's like four brains happening at the same time. But, you know, and I, I think that I've been, you know, I, I didn't have the chance to get rusty until uh, the, the pandemic happened and none of us could go outside or do any performances for two years. And then <laughs> I realized, oh, yeah, this. But I did get back into it. But it, it took me like half the script, half the first script we did. Beth, did you have any thoughts on this? No, not really. I think I think lovely. Um, we can move on. Perhaps been so <laughs> articulate that I would just say, "Yeah, brains over and over." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can you guys take us? I'm always curious about what this process is like for other shows. But can you take us from the wooden overcoat scripts get written? Um, that part Sarah and I are intimately familiar with. We have now gotten to contribute scripts this last final season. We got to get Yay. them in right under the wire. What happens from that point onwards? Um, like what how does a wooden overcoat script go from a script to a finished episode? Um, how much rehearsal do you do? What is recording like? Are there table reads? Um, sort of like what is the production process for overcoats like? Well, the first thing after the scripts are handed in, well, as you know, Gabrielle and Sarah is um, and I also know, as I've written for the show. And actually, Felix has now written a mini episode of the show as well. Yeah. But Beth uh, calls you of... up and tells you everything that's wrong with them. Yes, I know. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Antigua would never do this. How dare you? Um, uh, you made me sick. I hate you. Uh, uh, and yeah, so 
so from there on, once they're, once they're all approved, once you've written a, some drafts, got notes from David, the head writer, and then it's Chris been handed back and then back and back and forth. When they're finally signed off and sort of ready, or as, mm-hmm. as ready as they'll be before they get heard out loud, we then go into a big room, usually some kind of boardroom with a massive table in the middle, and we nice. do read-throughs. And would someone else like to pick up the baton here? Beth, you pick up the baton from that point. Yeah, so um, the table read days are a lovely opportunity to hear the scripts for the first time. And I think the main purpose of them is for David to hear how they're sounding and then collaborate with the writer's team on any things we need to change and also get people's takes on the room, whether there's anything they feel very strongly about needing to be changed. Um, it's actually it's really fun. It's nice for us to all see each other and see where the season's at. And we've done it since the beginning. I wasn't involved at the very beginning, but I think I'm right here, right, guys? Yeah, and yeah, we did, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. it's the, kind of... The first one was in my living room. Yes, right, true. yes. Um, and it's a nice collaborative thing um, before the scripts finally get signed off and we end up in the studio. Yeah. Have I missed anything? <laughs> no, no, then we get to the studio and then rehearsal-wise, it's just sort of... Well, obviously, us, us, we're sent the scripts a bit in advance, unless it's the last episode of the series, which, as David has frequently said, he'll tend to get in, you know, about half an hour into the recording session. Uh, he'll, <laughs> Adam style. He was writing right. it while you guys were recording, right? For uh, season uh, four? Yeah. <laughs> the last <laughs> series, bit. definitely. A bit. No, he was, he was fairly well in, uh, in advance. He, he was, we had plenty of time to prepare the script anyway. It was fine. But um, yeah, so we, we've got the scripts generally. So, well, a working version of them from those read-throughs, which will tend to be a month or two in advance of the recording days. Mm-hmm. And um, then we've got time to prep in our own time. But as for rehearsal altogether, it's just those read-throughs, which not all of the cast are at even. Some of them are sort of flex wow. actors filling in. And then we do one long, you know, one all the way through read-through in the studio in the morning of the of whatever day we're starting to record a certain episode. Uh, we get notes from David on any sort of last minute line changes he wants to put in. And if we've got any thoughts, we want to tweak any lines, we can do that too. Uh, John and Andy, the producers do uh, chime in as well. And then um, from then on, it's it's hell for leather, just trying to get the whole episode in the can in the time we've got in studio from then on. Uh, but yeah, so one, one read through essentially is, is kind of what we get. Wow. That's wild. And then you've got like multiple takes at each scene. So if there is mm-hmm. anything that needs running through a few times, there is time to do that. So that's kind of, it's very sort of immediate. Excellent. Wonderful. Let's say that you run afoul of a, uh, capricious yet powerful sorcerer who is oh. turning back time and taking you back to the beginning of Overcoats, taking you back to the beginning of this long, wonderful process, and you get to do it all over again. Um, but you have to play a different character than the one that you play. Uh, which wow. character would you like to play? <laughs> Other than Antigone. Um, <laughs> that's a tough one. I love Eric. Uh, he's not available. The sorcerer is taking them away from you. In that case, it would. Pr- I genuinely love, and actually, in a lot of my career, so called, I have done this. I love playing Misk. So I think the role I'd like to play is Pip Gladwin, Amazing. who gets to be awesome. Bill, as well as you know um, Darius Argento. What was his name? The magician Sorry, the Valentino. Oh, yeah, yeah. Darius yeah. Valentino, the magician. Zones. I am <laughs> wow. a genius, and I wouldn't do it as well as Pip because Pip is the best. Old Van Claude I, recently. Yes. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm so much fun. I'm There you go. That's right. And uh, yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to be Pip Gladwin, playing all of the extra parts. 
Felix? Oh, I thought you might come to me. <laughs> um, you know, I'm just, I'm going through in my head all of the different guests' um, roles that we've had over the years because we've, we've buried so many wonderful people. It's true, you have. Seymour Profit. It's the natural Felix casting. Oh, you know, actually, who I'd love to play is Lady Templar. Yeah. Ooh. What a shout. <laughs> An excellent choice. Katrina Knox is like, is, you know, we don't, we haven't had the chance to talk about many of our kind of guest actors that much, but Katrina Knox is the person I cannot look at in recording sessions <laughs> because I will laugh. Like it's it's the most she's so brilliant, she's demented so good. kind of mm. performance in the history of radio comedy. I think I I love it so it's much. The difficulty and with this question is it implies that we then have to get rid of or like rejig one of our actual. It's true. Um, guests. No, Katrina plays Rudyard. There's, there's, oh, well, fine, yeah. Well, she can do both. <laughs> yeah, she can do both. She's versatile. I'll I'll do the coffee. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Beth, what about yourself? I was going to say Katrina Knox, but yeah, to play Lady Templar. But um, I think Felix this is the would danger be of letting Felix go first. Is, is absolutely. I've walked in. I'll, I'll be Roger. No, um, <laughs> I would like to play Herbert Koff. Oh, uh, incredible! I'm afraid. Uh, I just. I think he's very funny. I think uh, he's very charming, and I really feel for him. But it's true. I really wouldn't want to unhorse Andy Hamilton. Or Katrina Knox, so it's, it's hard to imagine um, a parallel world. Undonkey, and she's got great stuff coming up as well, um, which I'm very excited about. I love that. You're going to have all the heartwarming indie movies. Absolutely. And I'd be playing Mr. Crumble if I'm Pip Gladwin in this alternate universe. There you you would, yeah. wouldn't you? All right, Mr. Yeah. Crumble. There you go. Mm. <laughs> no one said the mouse. What about you guys? Two yeah, exactly. Wrote, wrote episodes. And I'm interested have... to hear about this. Yes, they let us ruin a full a full fifth of the final season, which is why to us. Uh, our so infiltration finally came to fruition. This comes out. Yes, we believe that as um, this episode is airing, uh, episode five of the last season of Overcoast, written by our very own Miss Sarah Shackett, should be small, live. Very small, contained, um, quiet story. And that <laughs> very episode, yeah, restrained. <laughs> yeah. Very introspective. Dead, yeah. Dead man's chest. Dead man's chest. Yeah. Oh, it's boy. wonderful. It's so much fun. It's such a great episode. And it was really, it was it genuinely, because I've also written one from the first half of this series. And when I read the yours, geez. it really go, I should have done something funnier. <laughs> <laughs> I should have done something, a bigger idea with more opportunity for like, for funny stuff. I hated the scenes where I didn't get to be in the room just to see what was going on. It was because the read through was so much fun. Oh, it was brilliant. At the door, trying to see it. (laughs) (laughs) So much fun. Uh, and radio drama is coming up. Yeah, that'll be yeah. the first one back on the break. We'll be covering Yes, and we can tell you very little about it except the title, which is called Radio Drama. And that was about the fifth different title that the episode had. I kept kind of pitching things. And they kept shooting them down. And finally, he sort of said, like, can you just give me a list of options? And I've racked my brain and I gave him about 20 perfectly acceptable options. And then at the very bottom, I did stick. And if we wanted to be absolutely insufferable, we could just put our hands up and call it radio drama. And he went. Yes, that's the one. You've oh you've God. solved it. No, that's that's I I didn't I knew sort of what you were writing about, but I obviously didn't know the titles until they were announced on Twitter. And I saw that I was like, "Yep, 
that's that's the insufferable meta. Um, you have to call it that. that. I know yeah, and love. It's when it's there, you have to take it. You do. Yeah. Uh, but that'll be the next episode that is coming up after a uh, short break. That'll be kind of our our the mid season um, premiere, as it were. Absolutely. And then you listener will know why it's a perfect title, mm-hmm. which you currently don't, unless you're listening to this after the episodes come out, which you are free to do. But then you won't have this delicious anticipation of waiting <laughs> to find out why it's called radio drama. Quite a lot of time bending in this episode. What was the process like from your perspective? What's it like kind of being dropped yeah. into a property that, that already exists? Uh, pretty terrifying. Yeah. Um, and I think we, we had both written mini episodes first. Mm-hmm. So we had had like a smaller dose of that. But the, the, the fun fragments felt very low stakes. Like it felt like they could be weird or kind of off the voice and it would be okay. Um, because one, David would fix it, and two, it's a mini episode. No one cares. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it, there's a there's a lot of pressure to sort of get the voice of the show right. I luckily was kind of dropped in slightly later, so there was already a, a concept for episode five that I then mostly ignored. Um, but I sort of had some structure that I was writing towards, which I thought was helpful. What about you, Gabrielle? Yeah, it's interesting. Um because it's very rare for me to write in the position that I ended up writing in this episode, which was, it was episode six of a season where I hadn't been able to read the previous five scripts. Um, There was a wonderful, very helpful sheet of paper that sort of said like, you know, in episode one, vaguely this happens, in episode two, vaguely this happens. And then it finally got to like episode six, vaguely this happens, this is your job, make it so um you know we kind of got like our mission assignment um and i think that the thing that was that at first was a little stressful but then actually ended up being the perfect solution was that i don't know how much this was the case with your episode sarah but with my episode there were a lot of production constraints Mm -hmm. um there was sort of a lot of hey, so we need this to be an episode about this. On top of that, there's no other place in the season for this performer to kind of have a like starring role. So we need them to be heavily incorporated in this way. This thing cannot happen. This thing cannot happen. This is getting into something that will happen in episode eight. This will happen here. This will happen here. This will happen here. Um, And at first it was kind of this like, oh my God, how am I going to solve this? But eventually it sort of turned into like, oh no, hang on a second. This is actually extremely helpful because I'm kind of seeing the rows of the crossword puzzle just by kind of having all of these things. And I know that these are the puzzle pieces and I just need to put them in the right configuration and the right order, as opposed to kind of, if I didn't have those, it would have been a lot more, maybe I need different pieces. Maybe I need to pull in other things. Maybe I should do this. Maybe I should do that. Um, in that way, madness lies. But no, um, past that first initial bit of panic, it was it was an absolute blast. Um, yeah. David K. Barnes, he's a good showrunner. And these are some of the best characters in audio fiction. And it's it's a complete blast to write for them. Uh, I have a a footnote to this story, Gabrielle, which is, um, uh, I believe, so I don't know if you uh, were offered this opportunity, uh, Sarah and Gabrielle, but uh, at least for me and and some of the writers that have been longer standing on the show, David has always every series said, are there any stories you'd like to do? 
and uh, you know, do you have any pitches? And um, usually I'll put two, maybe three in if I can think of them. And this time it was very, very informal. And um, I, it was just over the phone, I think. David said, let's have a chat about it and bring any ideas you've got. And uh, one of the pitches was, well, I'd like to do one that's focused around Madeline the Mouse, which as uh-huh. listeners will now know is what happened in the end. The other pitch I had was basically what you ended up writing, Gabrielle. <laughs> It was only in the sort of most simple summary. But I think David even said, oh, no, I've already got an episode with uh, that theme and Gabrielle's writing it. So, <laughs> see, I made the decision very easy. <laughs> I had the opposite experience oh. where what David asked me was not, is there anything that you would like to not write, but is there anything that you would feel a little unsteady writing? Is there anything that would make you a little bit uneasy? Is there anything that you would be a little bit nervous? We want to kind of line you up with your strengths. So is there kind of something, some area of this world where you are not quite sure what the best way to tackle that would be? Um, and I said, said exactly one. Island. <laughs> yeah, uh, I said exactly one thing and he went fantastic and he went off and about two weeks later, he came back and he said, so... You know that one thing that you're nervous about writing. <laughs> I want you to write exactly about that. Um, and uh, we Again, had a conversation and he managed to persuade me that it was the right decision. And it was. Um, but no, but I did not get to pitch a story. I got to uh, try to ask for something not to get, which was then exactly what came my way. Very nice. Well, what you don't know is that David was basically asking, tell me the best way to torment you. <laughs> As he you often know, does. Is As there anything you does. would rather not write? Don't tell it. Say, oh, I'd hate to write the thing you really want to do. You go, hmm, yeah, it's interesting. Hmm. And it'll come back to you and say, hmm, you know that one thing. It's how he <laughs> operates. Well, I'll know that for the next season. Wouldn't, oh, 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 no. Oh. Oh, 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 oh so it's sad. The really sad thing is when all the characters are killed at the end of series four. Ooh, there yeah, we go. That, that happens in episode eight, and episode nine is just silence. It's just silence. Ten, yeah. <laughs> ten is extra long, episode, so it's actually an hour of silence. Episode ten is the uh, new Undertakers doing everyone's funeral once they <laughs> arrive at <in> the island. <laughs> Yay. Yeah. Oh, That's only the pr- it's, it's, pilot, baby. <laughs> it's just Desmond Desmond having to now tackle burying everyone and be the mayor of Piffley. Because all the other characters are dead. Uh, mm. He's I've finally been kept very busy. The follow-up series, Piffling Babies, and I just want to put that out on, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> on the air. Where, where they form a militia. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Natural. Yeah. Exactly. I like it. Someone Who brought you... up the idea of 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 baby Reverend Wavering, which I think is a delight. That'd be great. That is delightful. Who is? What is the spin-off you would all pitch if you had the opportunity? I'm going to jump in ahead of everybody else and say the Agatha Doyle mysteries, but that's just me. I, and I, that I'm was literally to, mine. I know. Well, I'm allowed to claim that because I wrote. <laughs> I wrote the only episode that exists so far. I wrote Piffling Lives, the uh, the casebook of Agatha Doyle. So that's I've already stuck my claim to that one. There you go. I want the very sleepy hospital drama starring Doctor Edgware. Yeah. Um, yeah, like think, like ER that, if you played I, it at point five speed. Yeah. <laughs> I think that I think that his episode is. I had skipped those supplementary episodes the first time that I went through the series because I'm a bad listener or I just did not spot them. And I heard them much later at a time when I was extremely stressed out 
and I have not laughed as hard at any podcast episode as I did at that Dr. Edgeware case book, um, just because I was in such a place of identifying with that poor deprived sleep, with that poor sleep deprived man. That's right. That was me and David, I think, that one. And what I remember is, because David created, he created that, uh, that character, who, in fact, the audience will have heard recently, Esther the Parrot. Yeah. Not as we're recording this, but when it's released, but, they will have heard back from Esther the Parrot. David created that for a little, for a print advert for Wooden Overcoats in a little zine I was putting out at the time when we first oh, yeah. launched the show. So essentially the sort of first and last paragraph of that casebook of Dr. Edgware, or no, whatever it's called, the, um, is it the casebook of Agatha Doyle? Yes, the casebook, I think, yeah. Yeah, so, but the, the, yeah, the journal of Dr. Edgware or the diary, uh, he wrote the first and last paragraph of that and I sort of filled in the middle, which span, it's it's like the kind of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern a dead version of series one of Wooden Overcoats. And it actually allowed me, if you look carefully, to, to fill in some plot holes from uh, <laughs> or some unanswered questions from Amazing. the series one. So if you want any footnotes on anything that was missing from the episode scripts, look up The Diary of Dr. Edgware, <laughs> Biffling Lives. Speaking of animals, I, I, I think that um, Random Mouse is... Is the spin-off waiting to happen? Oh yeah, and the mouse originally created by by Rosie Fletcher way back in the days. Um, that that's the show. Um, we were talking just before this about shows when you didn't realise that that was a spin-off of a, a previous show. That's the one that people are going to say that came out of wooden overcoats. Oh my yeah, god! Yeah, yeah. Kind of, yeah, absolutely. A mouse publishing empire mouse is a really publishing good. world. Yeah. yeah, close enough to yes, reality yeah. these days. Yeah, 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 true. Yeah, and that, I think that's another good candidate for a Wes Anderson um, stop motion movie, mm-hmm. <laughs> low key comedy. Mm. So, just one thing that I did want to get your guys' thoughts on is um, obviously, Wooden Overcoats deals not only with death being about undertakers, um, it, but and also very frequently like the physical gross realities of what happens to our bodies after we die um but it's also a series that has kind of a recurring preoccupation not only with love and romance as we often see it in audio fiction which is kind of a very chaste version of love and romance but there is kind of a preoccupation with these characters sex lives and sex drives um there is you know not only all kinds of relationships of different configurations and different orientations on the show, including certain characters who seem utterly uninterested in them. Um, But there is also a lot of discussions about erotic films with, you know, long, lingering, longing stares. There's a lot of discussion about um, erotic um, story compilations. Um, There is kind of laundromats. Yes, exactly. There's kind of a recurring trend of Piffling Vale being a little bit on the horny side. Um, And I don't quite have an articulate question to ask here, but I was wondering if you guys had kind of any thoughts on how the series grapples with and kind of like has like really made addressing this part one of its core tenants across all four of its four seasons. Well, it's a very calculated Aristotelian comment on the interplay between sex and death. Perfect. Moving on to the next question, then. (laughs) No, there's absolutely no. (laughs) I think it's just because, you know, sex is, particularly in Britain, because I think the sort of, the the much-loved sort of level on which British comedies often work is 
kind of being obsessed with sex or, or, or being desperate for romantic or sexual validation, but being too ashamed to go for it. And I think that applies mm. in most areas. Like British comedies are almost all about people who want things they either can't get, and usually they can't get them because of the obstacles they've put in front of themselves. And, you know, sex and love are, are some of the, the most uh, powerful motivators of um, money's boring. Uh, business success is interesting as seen in like Rudyard's obsession with trying to defeat Chapman at his own game. Destiny, family destiny. We played a bit with that in this series with Antigone saying, you know, if you hadn't come along, Chapman, I would have been burying this guy, the last of a long line, you know? And and I think there's that's interesting. But, you know, m money in real life motivates a lot of, um, a lot of friction and strife and, um, and the reason people do things, you know, and motivation. But it, it's slightly dull because it, it's such a kind of utilitarian thing, getting money. That's why it's more interesting when it's like wrapped up in a, a sort of a business rivalry or a family legacy yeah. or something like that. But, you know, love and, and sex are the other biggest reason that people do things in life. And I think that's kind of one reason. And, you know, death comes with the territory. But it, it, but I, have, I correct me if I'm wrong, Felix and Beth. But it seems to me that even though we've always played very fast and loose with the sort of the taste involved of um, you know corpses and and loss and grief and and people being eaten up by ceiling fans and stuff, you know, <laughs> in a kind of grand guignol way, it always feels like people find the show no less comforting. It particularly for people who have um, you know lost people in their lives. We've had quite a few messages from people saying, oh. I, you know, and it's it's not in spite of the fact that there's like grisly jokes in there. I think it's partly because of that. I think that's a human thing. I remember uh, a Stephen Fry bit that he was pointing out that our swear words in the English language, so I don't know if it's human or an Anglosphere thing, tend to revolve around like bodily functions and sex. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but you're kind of telling someone to... Um, I don't know, do something kind of graphic harm is is not. There's no real swear word there. Mm. We treat it uh, in a much more lightweight way. I don't know if that's a, a human psyche thing or if that's kind of born out of Victorian repression. Um, I kind of I kind of guess the latter. Mm -hmm. I think that's it. I think the I think something that you're um, you're getting at there, Tom, is there is attention in in british comedy around repression like you think of um basil faulty when the australian turns up right but with that the the flip side is liberation and a, a lot of the stories in piffling are are to do with that are to do with repression versus versus, versus liberation yeah hey, something that david has always said that's just uh, stuck with me is he didn't want it to be an island of curtain twitches. He didn't yeah. want it to be um, a, a, a kind of stuffy stereotype of the countryside. He wanted this to be almost a um, an a reply to that, an answer to that, a, a, a dismissal of that. Yeah. And we see that in, in the characters. It's quite utopian in many Absolutely. ways. It's like, there. if anything, it sort of feels like the only miserable uh judgmental you know element in the society of piffling which lived up to that stereotype was the funds or specifically Absolutely. rudyard and their parents uh, as well and again, too to some extent because it's all such a big deal for her and i think that's why they're the sitcom characters they are because yeah. they make things hard for themselves and they're in a world where 
everyone else in Piffling is having quite a nice, liberal, sexy time. Yeah. And that's not necessarily something that is open to them or that they want. So they are more isolated from all those other characters who are all different ages, all different professions, but seem generally pretty on board with swinging or whatever. And I think David's done that very deliberately. And I guess there is a bit of a preoccupation with sex throughout the whole thing. I hadn't quite realized that, but that's great. I like that. Because David's disgusting is uh, why. <laughs> he's a disgusting course, pervert. <laughs> and he just can't stop thinking about sex every minute of every day. Um, I think that's that's totally right. I, I think that, all, you know. It was in the notes that we got about the uh, season four cheat sheet. More sex. Disgusting. <laughs> sex. Yeah. But that's, I think that is, but I think that does hint at something that's very British, which is a kind of, and as you say, it's very Basil Faulty as well. It's, well, it also reminds me of what um, Steve Coogan said about Alan Partridge, my second Partridge reference of the day. He said, Alan Partridge is not secretly gay. He's terrified that he might be, like at all times. Mm. And it's a kind mm. of a constant fear of sort of, well, being seen to always go for things you want as well, like the, and the embarrassment that you might not get it. Or, or admitting that yeah. you have needs. That's another mm. sort of, I think, uh, phobia of, mm. of uh, sort of that traditional British mindset. Can I ask, with like the, the sort of context that you guys have coming out of different traditions of British comedy, is it like weird to you or have you been surprised by the international response to the show or sort of the, some of the things that um, us damn yes. Yankees have brought to it? I think, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, I mean, hugely to have had so much international. I mean, I, I don't know why we think that happened. I don't know if you guys can explain better than me why we think that happens, but it, it never ceases to amaze me that we have way more listeners outside the UK than in it. The sort of demographic in the US. Yeah. yeah Three fifths of our audience are American. Yeah. Incredible. I think it's partly because, um, you know, there is a, there is more that unites the audio drama and audio fiction listening community than location. And part of that is just the yeah. way internet culture tends to work. You know, mm. uh, teenage growing up in India who loves these sorts of shows is going to be best friends on Tumblr with a Canadian person you know like it's right it, it's it transgresses those boundaries but a part of me also goes it well i think that more broadly speaking because not everybody who is a fan of ours worldwide is hugely internet savvy or you know social media connected but i also kind of think to myself it's because it's good and the kind of <laughs> it helps us that you know our forebears british comedians and particularly british sitcom writers you know back when britain used to make more of them was kind of paved a, a reputation worldwide for for the English specifically, but you know, people from all the British Isles as well, of just being really, really good at making sitcoms and particularly telling stories about people sort of trapped in these strange little lives and, and things like that. And and I think while Overcoats very much is its own thing and David's writing has its own very distinctive flavor, he is taking from Hancock and got, you know, all of Goldman Simpson's mm -hmm. work and, and Faulty Towers and like all the greats of our kind of, um, of that tradition over here. And I think it's just that People love that stuff wherever they can find it, and also yeah. Britain has a, a, a bigger a bigger tradition than most countries in terms of uh, radio sitcom. Mm. You know, in terms of how, how the way that those our tradition of that is is great in a lot of places. So people are used to associating the accents that they hear in overcoats uh, and the sort of aesthetic style of wooden overcoats with uh, something they enjoy and something they find comforting, and or something that they recognize they associate with being high quality. 
So I think it's the fact that we 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 are good, <laughs> but it's it's Quality good travel sort of a style, you know. I, I think that there is something to say in in um, the idea that uh, the conversation and understanding of podcasts tends to follow the same path, but it takes a certain amount of time and. Mm. The US, from my observations, is at the front of the pack. People mm. have had the conversations about what is a podcast, going into uh, stereotypes about it being just two blocks chatting, going into true crime, going into audio drama, becoming a big thing. Um, I've been really fascinated watching podcasts developing in France, where they seem to kind of now be at the stage where everyone's talking about, hey, true crime is a thing. And everyone seems to go along this 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 stepping stone uh, in a similar way. So I, I, I think maybe just like the concept of a podcast has has more um, more currency abroad. And it's sort of in the English-speaking world as well. I mean, that doesn't quite apply because I know that, you know, it seems to be less of a phenomenon in, well, to some extent, in Australia and New Zealand, or maybe things just don't travel over there quite as well. But mm-hmm. um, definitely in the sort of Western English-speaking world, it feels like a lot. Of, well, because obviously, like so much, so much of the content that's become enormously famous is English language. I'm not counting us here. I'm talking about your your giant Mark Marons and people like that. You know, the people, yeah. you know, Conan O'Brien, people who sort of become ginormous successes. And um, yeah, and it, it, and I think that yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe it is just that those are the cultures also that have have engaged with it as a medium but also have the content there to to let them get stuck in in their you know own mother tongue you have a perspective on it Absolutely. you are the you, you are the american audience well americans audience and writers that is true what do you what do you think i mean it's interesting because like i i it's one it's good it's very good it's very funny i enjoy listening to this very funny show um but i do sometimes feel like i understand it everything that's that's trying to get across to me and also that there's probably context that i'm missing Mm. is the the feeling that that i have uh with it sometimes of like i feel like i understand the show and that if you know i'd grown up in the uk i would understand it better you know what the beano is and uh get all the references to billy whiz in our summer special the most unapologetically english of all of the episodes it's generational too, though, because I don't get most of that. That's true. <laughs> I get a handful of dust references, but hey. oh right, yeah, because it's so bloody clever. Here we are in the sandpit reading the dandy. And I'm, the- I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? All right, guys. So I think the last thing that I want to touch on is just, um, you know, for what seven going on eight years now, Overcoats has been this beloved pillar of the audio fiction community, but perhaps even more importantly than that, it's been a huge part of your lives. Um, Without giving away more spoilers than you already have over the course of this conversation, (laughs) uh, what was it like to bring the show to a close? What was it like to go through those last recording sessions and to now kind of have it be a book that is, if not quite closed for the listenership at least from kind of a recording standpoint um has now had kind of like you know the last words written on the few last pages that remain you'll be glad to hear that it was incredibly moving and that we all had a cry and hugged each other at the end of the last take 
Good, no, good. Which, this is the content um, I'm, I'm looking for. That's what you're after. I, it was, yes. And I think there is some footage of it, which may be released at some good, point. Those good, Excellent, excellent. And it was, um, yeah, lots of hugs, lots of weeping. And, and I, you know, obviously I'll let Felix and Beth tell me how they thought, but I, I felt like we were leaving it with the right script, it, having given the audience exactly the correct amount of, you know, experience and information, seeing all the things they, I, I think that all the things that they what ought to get to see and hear happen. And um, yeah, I, I think it's just, David's done a tremendous job of, of wrapping the show up. And uh, I think that you'll essentially be able to look back on a canon of, of four seasons of extremely good stuff and, and not feel like the show outstayed its welcome at all, is my feeling. But I'm still sad to see it go. I'm really sad that we won't. I'm very, very sad that we're not going to be, unless any other project comes along, who knows, nothing in the pipe yet, but who knows what might happen. I'm very sad to think that we won't get to spend a week or two in the Octagon Studios in Brixton having like the best fun of my life and getting paid for it. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so on the last day of recording, we did the Halloween special in the morning and then finished up episode 10, I think. And I think that meant that um, some of our recurring old guard, Alison Skilbeck, Sean Baker, Andy Seacombe, were sort of done at lunchtime. Uh, and I cried then, and I basically didn't stop crying for the rest of the day. So, um, yeah, it's 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 something to bring it to an end after all this time. It really is. But I agree. I I certainly hope listeners will agree. I think the last episode is grand. So, yeah. But it's weird. It's weird to be finishing it. It's like they're dead. I mean. They're not dead. Maybe they're dead. Whatever. <laughs> but as I said, they all get killed in the final episodes. <laughs> There's no more. No more of them coming, and that is weird. Weird. I didn't cry. You did. Did you not? Oh, I did. <laughs> no, I was the only one who didn't. But then my my emotional tuning fork is made of granite. Um, <laughs> so now that's horse shit. <laughs> the, bit, the bit, the thing that I did find very moving. Um, was a little before that final scene. I was in the kitchen with Sean Baker, who plays the mayor, and Andy Seekin, who plays the reverend, both of whom are stalwarts of radio drama um, and have been in, in sort of hundreds of productions. Um, Andy plays uh, just about every minor character in the last three seasons of Hitchhikers. Um, and I was asking them about um, favorite favorite recording studios, which was a bit of a gambit to get them to reminisce about cool uh, radio drama recordings at me. And I had this sudden feeling, and I had it again afterwards when I was talking to Andy Hamilton, of being part of the tradition of our having been able to work with these people who'd been doing it a very long time and creating the content that we grew up listening to uh, and then sort of being able to see us slotting in to the timeline. Uh, and I found that in incredibly moving. Uh, and it, it kind of occurred to me afterwards at the restaurant that uh, we went to the restaurant afterwards, um, <laughs> that this was, that this was important that what we were doing, there's always a feeling when you work in the arts, um, if you are at all prone to self-doubt that maybe you should have become an electrician or something useful. Um, and I, I was kind of coming out of it just going, no, 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 this is, 
people like this. This is useful. I remember the feeling of being a teenager and listening to um, radio comedy just at night. I used to listen to it before I went to sleep. And I've heard stories of other people doing the same with overcoats. And um, yeah, the, that sort of feeling of, of looking up and into space and going, oh, I'm alive. This is incredible. That, that, that sort of sunk over me um, on that last day. Yeah, it's also, uh, I, I relate to that very much, Felix, and we've talked about that a lot, you know, those experiences listening to uh, radio comedy and really engaging with it, it feeling like, you know, a bit of home. And uh, two of the shows that, that the big ones for me were The Goon Show, starring Harry Seacombe, whose son is a regular performer in our show, and mm. the other one uh, being Old Harry's Game, which was written by and starring Andy <laughs> Hamilton, who is another recurring mm. guest on this show. <laughs> and there's other people. I mean, Alison Skilbeck and, and Julia Deacon and Paul Putner, and these are all heroes of mine. You know, it's it's been it has been the most I would say concentrated time for getting to rub shoulders and really work alongside people I you know have worshipped through my life. So that's another you know you can't undervalue that. Beautiful. Um, Alrighty. Well, guys, uh, we could talk to you forever, but this, I think, is already one of the <laughs> meatiest and mightiest interviews that we've ever done. Um, so we're going to release you um, so that we can get back to listening to today's brand new episode of Wooden Overcoats, written by our very own Sarah Shackett. Um, but uh, Felix, Tom, Beth, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks um, for having us. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Where should people go to listen to Overcoats or to listen to other things that you do? Any podcast app, but they should also go to KPlayer to watch the live show live stream. Yes. 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 We talked about the live shows here a bit. You can still, I think they'll, at the time this comes out, there'll still be three in person if you're in London or accessible to London. But if not, as Felix says, you can live stream every show and then... You can even for how long is it? Is it 28 days, Beth, after? Uh, yes, they're available for 28 days. I think you have to buy a ticket within seven days. Um, uh, but You can restream it like an on-demand. Yeah, yeah, bags of time. And you can watch that from the comfort of your own home. Excellent. Brilliant. And we highly encourage it. Comfort of someone else's home. <laughs> or someone else's home, if you like, as long as you're being COVID compliant. <laughs> That's the important thing about that. Yeah. We're very, very uh, all about health and safety. Mm -hmm. Thank you guys so much for being on the show. We'll need to have you on again sometime very soon. We'd Thank love you. to. Thank you. Please. Let's talk about it after we stop recording. When are we next going back? <laughs> <laughs> we haven't got our own podcast to do anymore, so we're just going to squat on yours Still for yours. as long as we possibly can. <laughs> This has been No Bad Ideas, produced by Gabrielle Urbina, Sarah Shackett, and Zach Valenti. Many thanks to our patrons for their partnership in making this show happen. And a special shout out to our idealist members, Jennifer Schneider, Rena Sarame, Jeffrey Felsher, and Dia. Today's episode features music by Statesher and Jazar from freemusicarchive.org. You can support the show at nobadideaspodcast.com slash support. And if you love this show, please leave a rating or review wherever you listen and share it with someone you love.